reality. Re reality is one of those things that I think when we're honest with ourselves, we, we sort of have a love-hate relationship with. Um, our, our culture values, realists, people who are, who are capable of, of looking at the cold hard facts just as they are and dealing with them, and that's a good thing, but I, I, think, I think for most of us, uh, we have a blind spot or two uh, that we cultivate for the parts of reality we don't particularly enjoy. Um, it, it's more of, reality's more of our on-again, off-again fling rather than our, our, our committed partner. Um, you know, you're cool reality, I like you, I want us to still be friends, but I need to work on me for a little bit, um, kind of thing, you know. And, uh, and I get that, because in a lot of ways, when, when you look at it, it actually gets kind of unpleasant, because being with reality is, is, is eerily like being in an abusive relationship. Um, reality will, will throw you down the stairs and, and laugh while you fall. It will tell you that, yes, you do look fat in those pants. Um, it, it'll beat you, lie to, and mistreat you. And... And that's just reality. And, and like any good textbook abusive relationship, the, the people who want to stay with reality, well, they have to develop psychological strategies for coping with it, mechanisms for, for justifying what's happening. And the name we give to that is optimism. <laughs> Things will get better. Things are getting better. Reality can change. Um, <laughs> it, it, in the early 1900s, as the, as the 20th century dawned, it was a time of unprecedented optimism in the world. Uh, science and technology were building a better, brighter future. Uh, knowledge was going to save us. New inventions were making life easier, cheaper, better. Uh, quality of living was going up. Cost of living was going down. New academic fields, uh, universities were confident that, that Generations-old human problems were either already solved or just on the cusp of being so. Give us a few years. Um, and then World War I, the Great War, happened. And the, the technology and the engineering and the science that was going to save us, was going to usher in the air of peace and plenty, showed humanity for the first time what war looked like on an industrial scale. Optimism allows us to live with reality uh, for brief bouts of time, but history seems to suggest that optimism is usually the first casualty of reality's violent temper. We are into our third week in Exodus, so we're still going strong. Um, and, and, if you've, and if you've been with us from the beginning, um, we've, we've been dealing with these th different themes that are in play. Uh, Fear and, and faith, hopelessness and hope, uh, the, the promise of the future against the, the terrible reality of the present. And, and, the, and the question becomes, well, faced with reality as it presently is, how do people respond? How does a people claimed by God respond? How does God himself respond? So for today, we're going to be in the second half of the second chapter of the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 2, 11 to 25. And so into this, this situation of oppression and genocide we've been reading about, behind the scenes, God spares this, this baby Hebrew boy named Moses. And what happens? Well, follow along with me. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, Sorry. 
And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During these many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Because God knows of our need for salvation, we can serve as we wait on him. Because God knows of our need for salvation, we can serve as we wait on him. I, I don't know all the details of all of your lives. Um, I sincerely hope none of you have been enslaved by ancient Egyptians. Um, if you have, I'm sorry, trigger warning for this sermon. Um, but, but inequality, oppression, exploitation, man's inhumanity to man, we, we didn't leave those things behind in ancient Egypt any more than we did at the dawning of the 20th century. That's still reality. Our lives are still marked and by and, and lived in the midst of a world and a social system that will happily chew people up and spit them out. Um, and, and, you know, maybe some of the people here have, have the teeth marks to prove it. When we get a harsh view of ugly reality as it is, the, our, our reaction is pretty universal. Something here is wrong. Something needs to change. It isn't fair, it isn't right, and, and you can pick your poison, you know, with, as we prayed, we talked about some of these things, but you have human trafficking, you have third world sweatshops, because gosh darn it, we like our cheap tennis shoes. Um, you have parents who don't take care of their kids, you have so many things, homelessness, joblessness, treatable diseases that go untreated because of whatever reason. I hope if you think for a while, you can find something that'll make you mad. Salvation is, is a big churchy word, but it, it, it shouldn't be. The world needs change. The world needs saved. Something's got to give because reality as it stands is, is just too terrible to contemplate. Moses grows up as a prince of Egypt. He's given a first-rate education. The, the world is kind of his, his whatever the, the Jewish version of an oyster is because that ain't kosher. Um, but one day, at some point, I think around his 40s, he decides to go up, to go out, to go outside his comfort zone, to go outside of what he had been raised to receive, which was a very nice thing, and he went out to see how his people were doing. 
his, his, his ethnic people, the people of Israel. And he looked on their burdens and he saw injustice. And, and it's interesting because the, the text, it refers to the Israelites as his people twice. Uh, almost like the narrator is telling us that, that as Moses looks on this scene, he's not identifying with his privileged Egyptian upbringing. He's identifying with his oppressed ethnic brothers and sisters. Uh, when, when someone is beating a Hebrew, it says that they're beating one of his people. And this is what Moses sees. He, he sees an Egyptian violently beating a Hebrew. Uh, and then the word for, for strike that gets used several times in this passage, that's not just like, you know, somebody gets punched in the face and then everybody dusts each other off. That, that's a word that very often in the Bible ends in somebody being very dead. Um, and so Moses sees this and he acts to repay it. He murders the Egyptian and he hides his body in the sand. Israel's in chains, but here's Moses ready to save the day. One corpse-filled sand dune at a time, if need be. Um, someone stood up to the powers of the day in an unambiguous and irrevocable fashion. Uh, Moses is fighting the system, sticking it to the man, uh, taking on the pharaonic military-industrial complex, whatever your favorite metaphor is. He's wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt. Um, you know, viva la revolution. Um, there's just one problem with that. He goes out the next night, fists still full of justice like some ancient Mesopotamian Batman, um, and he encounters the same scene again, but for one crucial difference. It's two of his own people oppressing and violently beating each other. And so Moses steps in. Why are you striking your companion? And we've seen this movie. This is where Moses is supposed to give the big speech, right? who the real enemy is. The people join together, storm the castle, and then that doesn't happen. Reality happens instead. Instead of banding together, instead of realizing the error of their ways, throwing aside their differences, instead the guy asks Moses, who made you a prince and judge over us? Who made you a prince and judge over me? Who are you with your fancy designer label Egyptian pants touring these streets with your selfie stick that you've, you've never had to live on and you're showing the world how much you care by coming into a situation you know nothing about and, and bossing us around with your hero complex? Who put you in charge, you putz? This man is in the wrong. I mean, that's his name in the Bible. The man in the wrong. What a terrible name to be immortalized by. Um, he was beating another Hebrew, and Moses comes at him full of righteousness and the moral high ground, so he thinks, and, and the guy's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me? Are you going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? Some people, um, people I've talked to, commentators I've read, they wonder if Moses did the right thing here. Um, I mean, he killed a guy, but he was f fighting against injustice. Uh, some people said, well, this is a, this is a proleptic judgment on Egypt. This is a, a down payment, a foreshadowing of the upcoming divine smackdown against Egypt. Um, and when I read this, I just don't see that. Maybe some people do. I don't. I, I see Moses look this way and that to make sure that there's no one there. I see him kill somebody, and I see him hide the evidence. And I don't think you hide what you're proud of. When, 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 when he gets challenged, when he gets called out on murdering this guy, he doesn't say, well, well no, no, I'm not going to kill you. You're an Israelite. I'm a divine instrument of God's judgment against Egypt. He doesn't say that. What does he say? They know. Somebody talked. Somebody saw. They know. 
and he runs. And it's a good thing, too, because the next sentence, Pharaoh's after him with a big old axe. Moses <laughs> flees across the, Sin the desert into the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, and, I, and I'm certain haunted by the, that accusation. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? He had to run from everything he had never known in a mad rush just to stay alive. He, he had gone from prince to fugitive. Uh, Mo Moses tries to usher in freedom and justice and salvation on his own power, and he fails. He rejects the privilege of his upbringing, decide with the people he's chosen to identify with, and his own people reject him. Moses' whole life falls apart in one paragraph. Is your optimism on life support yet? Human efforts to attain salvation are at best incomplete. When, 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 we, when we look at injustice, do we want to respond? I hope so. But the continued existence of injustice says that, that something's not working. Something isn't turning out how we hope. And, and the question becomes, well, do, do we think that we just need to do something different? Do we think we can change reality if we become a little better, if we find and adopt the right program, if we just get rid of the people who aren't with the program? Um, th this week in our country, we've, if, you've, if you've had the misfortune of following the news, we, we've seen mobs of people beating each other and burning buildings um, because they're convinced they're saving the world from a worse fate. Um, and, and, and I have my doubts about that. Um, I, I see just, just one more human attempt to usher in salvation that will invariably end as a one more flaming chain, train wreck. Um, but isn't that so often how it turns out when we try to save the world? And so, and so that is my first point, that, that, that human efforts to attain salvation, are, they're incomplete at best, and more often they're, they're total catastrophic flaming train wrecks of failure. Um, so if you're one of those people who, you know, writes down the sermon points, write that whole sentence on the back of, of your bulletin. Um, don't do that. <laughs> um, and, and so and that kind of leads into the second point, and that's just that, that human attempts at salvation don't last. Because, uh, because, you know, saying that, well, human attempts to create salvation are incomplete at best and then, you know, are counterproductive and, and fail at worst, it can be very easy to think, okay, well, give up, go home, yay. Uh, that's the right thing because when, when, when the Allies broke the Third Reich's hold in Europe, when the, when the Berlin Wall came down and the, the Iron Curtain fell shortly thereafter, or, or just even when the, the law of the land anywhere pushes back the darkness a little bit so that the people under their protection can have an ounce of, of security and sanity in the world. That's a good thing. Um, I, I don't want to discount that. Those are good things. The only problem is they just don't last. The world does not and will not stay saved. New atrocities bloom out of the soil fertilized by the atrocities of yesterday. Um, Human strength fades, human will fades, human integrity fades, and invariably as one generation's instruments of justice become the next generation's instruments of oppression. 
people can't make a good thing stick. The, the honeymoon phase of our relationship with reality doesn't last. Moses tries to save his people and he fails. He fails morally and he fails practically. Uh, and it costs him his lifestyle and it threatens his safety and he runs, he quits. He comes to the land of Midian and sits down at the local watering hole because he's got nowhere else to go. Uh, he's broke, he's on the run, he's rejected by every possible segment of his past, both his Egyptian side and his Hebrew side. Um, and he's sitting by a, a well on a hot day in a foreign country looking like the very poster child of anti-vagrancy laws. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what, this is what failure looks like. Uh -huh. And then something interesting happens. There's this guy, this local pagan priest named Ruel, uh, sometimes goes by Jethro. That's how you know they're in the country, you're running into dudes named Jethro. Um, and, and he's got seven daughters. And these girls are tasked with watering and caring for their, their father's flock of animals. Uh, but they're also unescorted, unprotected women in a, in a terrible time and place. And so the local shepherds drive them off. Back of the line, woman folk. Head back to yonder kitchen, bring us back a sandwich. Um, and, and Jethro's daughters are, are physically weaker than this mob of unwashed yabos um, that constitute the Midian Shepherds Association. And, and because they're weak, they'll get nothing and like it. And that's reality. And then, once again, something interesting happens. Uh, the the sand-crusted, weather-beaten hobo sitting by the well stands up. Moses isn't quite done picking fights with bullies just yet. And what, what's fun here, when, when you read the text, um, it's a camera cut. Uh, the, the, the way it's written, you, you kind of have to picture it. You have these roughnecks hassling these women, causing this scene, and then the camera pans over, and then there's this bearded, crazy-eyed, desert-looking nomad type sitting by the well, and he stands up, and he starts walking towards them, and the camera fades to black. And then when the camera comes back on, Ain't no shepherds in sight. <laughs> and, and Moses is, is watering the women's sheep. And, you know, maybe in the background a few of the stand, sand dunes are a little taller, more full somehow. <laughs> probably not, probably not. But um, the, the point is, the interesting thing is, is that he saves these women and then he serves them because Moses' character doesn't seem to have changed. Maybe it's matured a little uh, since the incident in Egypt. Maybe it's a bit more restrained, but he's still the guy who sees someone beating on someone else and says, not today, sunshine. Um, and the girls go home and, and their dad's wondering why they're, they're home so early and they tell him what happened. Um, now, Rule has seven daughters and... Um, the Bible tells us his primary job was priest of Midian, and that's true. But I think we've all seen this movie or read this play. The guy has seven daughters. His primary job is finding seven eligible young men. Um, and so when his daughters tell him, yeah, we were getting harassed and mistreated, and then this handsome and totally ripped guy totally not wearing a wedding ring shows up and, and saves us at great personal cost to himself, expecting nothing in return. And then we just left him by the well, and Rule's like, what did you do? Get him over here now. Invite him to dinner. Bat your eyelashes. He was probably a doctor. <laughs> and then they're like, actually, I think he was an Egyptian prince or something. And he's, his head explodes. Um, but, but he invites Moses over and into his family. He, he, he marries one of the priest's daughters. One down, six to go. Good luck rule. Um, and Moses settles down. Zipporah and he have a baby. He's content. It says he was content to dwell with the man. Moses is good. And back home in Egypt, Israel is still in chains. 
See, as far as Moses is concerned, that chapter of his life is over. He names his firstborn son Gershom, which is, uh, sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for sojourner. Moses' new identity that, he, that he's sealing in his firstborn son is that of an expatriate, a wanderer. This is the son of his exile. He's an unhomed immigrant living in a foreign land, and that's his life now. He did his best. He didn't, it didn't take, and he moves on with his life. And, and it's very easy to judge Moses for that, the quitter. Um, but, but, I mean, we could call him a coward, but I think the, the episode at the well kind of disproves that. He couldn't save his people. He tried. They rejected him. It cost him everything. This, I think most of us would say, well, this is a man who's paid his dues and then some. He, he deserves to move on and have a life. There's an expiration date on human efforts to attain salvation. Most of us quit before we actually even get out the door with our how to fix the world plans. Moses actually did more than that. But there are limits. There are limits of power. You, you can't overthrow an empire with your fists and your overrated sense of self-importance. You can't force people to realize they need saving, even... And it's obvious they do, because they would rather be beating on and blaming each other. And the fact is, there are limits, there are limits of authority. Who made us a prince and a judge? There, there are limits of mortality. We run out of strength, we run out of steam, we age and we die. Because even if I'm better than Moses, I'm just going to plug away at the problem forever, every day of my life, never give up, I'm not a quitter. Even if you manage to achieve some some flimsy facsimile of, of earthly salvation. The fact is, at the end, you're going to have to hand that torch off to a new generation that, that might fight for it the way that you did, but more than likely will just throw it through the window of the nearest building to watch it burn. There's a real tension here, because I, I think in the hearts of people, and, and this is what I've seen, there is a God-given wrath at injustice. We see things that are wrong and, and we say that's not right. Now, in some of us, that, that only turns on when it happens to us. When it gets a little bit more developed, it happens when it ha we, we see it and we feel that in response to other people's pains. Um, and to try and turn that off, to choke it down, to, is to permit, if not to participate, in the evil that first roused that sense of righteous outrage. And yet at the very same time, it seems that our every response to evil too often just creates more of it. And that every hard-won victory is so quickly swallowed up by time and forgetfulness that we're left wondering, what's the point? I mean, do we, do we roll up our sleeves and say, well, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few Egyptians? Um, or do we quit and become goat herders in the desert? Um, I, I, the more I think about it, it's really just how life breaks down. You, you either punch people or you just quit and go home and become a goat herder. Um, it's a metaphor. <laughs> God knows our need for salvation. That's what, that's what we're coming up to. Because the question becomes, well, how do we live? What side of this no-win equation do we come on down? Do we, do we fight knowing that we might just cause more problems to achieve an incomplete and temporary salvation? Or do we just tend our sheep in the desert. And, and so the third point is that God knows our need for salvation. That's, that's the missing bit of information in this, that, that answers this dilemma. Moses is done with Israel. 
But God isn't. And God's not even done with Moses yet. He just don't know it. God's been in the background of our story up to this moment. And by faith um, and through, through our study, I hope we've seen that he's been there. He's been working in the background um, through, through normal and miraculous means. But up to this moment, the reader has kind of been left with, with few explicit mentions of God's existence, much less explicit references of a meaningful, meaningful response to what's happening here. And it's at this point in the, that last paragraph of this chapter that the narrative shifts that we see this great hinge moment happening in history. Time passes, the old pharaoh dies, a new pharaoh arises, and nothing changes. Brutality and oppression and slavery continue. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And it's here, it's at that moment, at, at the end of humanity's strength, as their last and greatest hope, to save themselves fizzles out and starts herding sheep in the desert that something happens. We get a view behind the scenes and we see that the groans and the cries and the pleas of the people have neither gone unheard nor unseen. And, I, and the contrast here should be striking, I hope, when, when, when we read this passage because yet another Pharaoh has arisen who has forgotten the God of Israel. And Moses has chosen to forget the people of Israel. And we're thinking, well, man, those, those guys are just hosed coming and going. There's, there's nothing left for them. And then the camera moves, and we find that the pleas of humanity for, for deliverance, for salvation, have in fact not fallen on the deaf ears of an uncaring universe, but instead have come into the very presence of God Almighty. And we read that, that God remembers his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, the, the ancestors of this people, the people he made those outlandish and impossible promises to that he has been keeping with alarming regularity. And, and it's kind of interesting language. And I know Michael's talked about this before. Well, God remembered, did it slip his mind until now? Um, and and it's, uh, it's, it's a fa fancy word, an anthropomorphism. It's, it's, but it's, it's denoting, it's telling us that we see the moment at which God calls those promises to the forefront of his purpose and purposes to act upon them. The, the time of waiting and wondering is over. As we read this section, we see that, that that period has ended and now God is beginning to move. And, and the earth will, will, will creak under the tread of his feet when he does. Why? Why does this happen? Well, because God hears, because God sees, because he knows what is happening. He knows what reality is doing day by day to the weakest and most defenseless amongst us. He sees our need to be saved. And, and God has remembered every one of his problems because, or promises because when you look at the promises God makes to the patriarchs, it's interesting. He promises a childless man a son. He promises a landless nomad a country. He promises the youngest, or well, the second years of 12 brothers importance and meaningful work. He promises an enslaved people liberation. God knows what we need. And he hears our cries and he sees our struggles. And, and he knows what our every experience and that can and should confirm that we can't save ourselves, much less our world. And our attempts to do so, however occasionally brave they are, however right and necessary and proper it may be for us to stand up and try to do the right thing and speak up for people, God knows 
that ultimately those things will be incomplete and they won't last. God knows that. And God himself will save this people in the book of Exodus. Again, spoiler alert, this should not be a surprise to anybody at this point. Um, and God will save this people because he knows that there's no one else who can. There's no one else who will. Uh, humanity chose the current reality. We, we set the rules of this game when we tried to make ourselves princes and judges in God's place, when we, over and against God himself. We, we, each one of us thinks we have the unique plan that's going to make God's head spin, uh, and we're going to save the world. And, and every time we try to build the walls of utopia, we end up mortaring them with the blood of the voices we've had to silence to create the temporary peace that we're just so proud of. God will save this people, and sometime later from this moment, the, as we advance into Exodus, um, they'll stand delivered and free, very close to this spot out in the desert where, where Moses is, is quitting, is giving up. And Moses will be tasked with delivering God's law to that people. And, and, and this is the, the archetypical Exodus scene, and, and we won't get there in this study because we're just going to be going through the first third. Um, but Moses is going to be given two tablets uh, graven with stone. And, and carved on one of them will be the damning words, you shall not murder how heavier that tablet must be for Moses going down that mountain than the other one. Um, he'll have to carry those tablets down that hill and proclaim to those people a standard that he knows he doesn't meet. That he knows he does not meet. And God knows that. God sees that. How completely in need of salvation we are and how completely unable we are to usher it in. And the answer is that, well, God has sent us a prince and a judge. He has sent us Jesus. Because it's, it's easy to knock on Moses in this scene. And like I said, I think you can argue that Moses is one of the best among men. He, he did more. He risked more. He gave up more than any of us probably ever would. Um, I'd like to think that with the empowerment of the Spirit, that's something we could, we could, we could try to push for ourselves. But, but if Moses was the best of us, then we still have problems because he couldn't do it. Moses left behind his perishable Egyptian splendor. Uh, Hebrews 11 talks about that. Moses did not, he, he didn't choose the fleeting pleasures of sin, but set his faith on something more. And, and when we're told that, that Jesus left behind the divine splendor of the imperishable throne in heaven, Moral, Moses was morally compromised and rejected by his own people. Jesus was morally blameless and put to death by his own people. And the irony is, is that though Moses was rejected for his bloody handedness. Um, and the Israelites in Jesus' day probably would have crowned Jesus king if he had started advocating violence and killing people and leading a revolution. And I think we can say that just because there were false messiahs after Jesus and they started wars and people followed them. The Romans had to put those guys to death. Um, their own people didn't need to help. Moses was content to dwell in Midian and leave reality as it stood and still stands in place. And Jesus wasn't. And, and to paraphrase Colossians 2, Jesus didn't rest until he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities. Reality as it stands. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. 
till every sin had been bled and suffered for, and every, every drop of the full cup of God's righteous wrath at the sin of man had been drunk until he could speak in truth those words from the cross, those words that have sealed our victory. It's finished. So how do we live then? That was the question earlier on. How do we live then? In light of this, if this is true, and we are a people claimed by God and purchased at that price, what do we do? Because I think there still remains a tension. And earlier was this, this unsolvable problem. Well, do we try and fail, or do we hurt goats? And, and, and I think in, in the presence of the crucified and more to the point the risen Christ, we're still left with attention, but it's a beautiful and mysterious one. Because on the one hand, the war is won. Christ has struck the blow that will spell the end for death and evil. And yet, the, the final moments have not yet played out that show us the final end of, of the devil and his angels already sealed fate. Injustice still surrounds us, but now it has an answer. It has been answered in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Because God knows our need for salvation, we can serve as we wait on him. And so, as, as believers, we are empowered. We can wait on this coming salvation, knowing it will be complete, unlike anything we could do for ourselves. Knowing that it will last, unlike anything we could do for ourselves. Because we know that the one who promised it is faithful. And yet, so, so that's the one hand. We can wait, we can rest, we can breathe. And by the same token, rather than trying to save the world by our own means and on our own merits and failing, we have been invited into the redemptive work of God in history. God's spirit is with us, his claimed people, and, and we can work and serve and participate in the greatest coup of all time, the overthrow of misery and evil and oppression as the determinative forces in the lives of all humanity. We can, we can open our homes, we can open our hands, we can open our lives and share the gospel. The good news that our prince and our judge has defeated sin and death. And that all humanity can repent and can be reconciled to God. And so, so we can wait and we can work. We can rest as we labor, uh, knowing that we won't usher in the kingdom of God, but that it's coming anyway. We've been afforded the honor of being heralds of this coming kingdom, uh, being proclaimers of this good news, being the hands and feet of this coming king. And so, my, my brothers and sisters, if I may encourage you, go up and go out to where people are being oppressed. Where people are being beaten down by this life, cultivate within you a godly detestment of injustice. And, and having done so, then in love and service, point to the one who has saved us from it. Speak out against injustice. Speak the name of Jesus. The, the one at whose command every chain shall indeed one day be broken. Lift up your fellow man because you have been lifted up. Love as God in Christ has loved you. And not because by doing that we're going to save the world, but because 
as a, but, but as an act of worship to the God who already has saved the world. This, um, this, this, this was a hard message for me um, just because I, I struggle with, with both extremes of the do nothing and be so angry that you sin. Um, and, and I'm so afraid of this one that I live in this one. Um, and that should not be. Uh, and so, so I confess to you my struggles. You probably have your own versions of that or something totally different, but I'm confident you're, you're just as jacked up. Um, but lean on the Spirit. Lean on the Gospel. Preach that to yourself. Um, because you can't share what you haven't received. You can't uh, share out of the overflow of God's grace in you unless you're bathing in it. Um, and I'm so glad that, that we are here today, that we're worshiping together. Um, and, and I pray that, that all we do and all we've done here today um, brings glory to the God who has saved us and indeed the world. Uh, amen.